0: This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left wing titles, perfect for dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Islanda, the large and unconventional life story of Mrs. Paul Robeson by Barbara Ransby. Islanda S.E. Cardozo Good Robeson was a woman of unusual accomplishment, an anthropologist, a prolific journalist, a tireless advocate of women's rights and an outspoken anti-colonial and anti-racist activist. Yet historians, for the most part, have confined Essie to the role of Mrs. Paul Robeson. Now, Barbara Ransby has written the first biography of this bold, principled, and fiercely independent woman who defied convention to make her mark on the world. As Robin D.G. Kelly puts it, "Islanda is an incredibly powerful, vital work, Find Eslanda at haymarketbooks.org. Eslanda, The Large and Unconventional Life of Mrs. Paul Robeson, by Barbara Ransby. Out now from Haymarket Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Doing politics often requires that we try to make a virtue of necessity. Today, we must ask whether the Supreme Court striking down Roe v. Wade might create, or at least help create, some sort of crisis of which we can take advantage. Most concretely and horrifically, this ruling is of course guaranteed to further restrict access to abortion a right that the right wing has been gutting for years at the state and federal level, and that as a result is already effectively denied to so many in conservative states and also to so many everywhere who can't afford to pay for the procedure. How the ruling will impact politics is uncertain. What does seem certain is that it will be impossible to guarantee access to abortion as a right, let alone a right that can be exercised free and on demand, without dramatically curbing the power of the Supreme Court and radically transforming its composition. The same goes for confronting the climate emergency and protecting workers' rights and voting rights, the right to Medicaid coverage, so much else. And changes of that magnitude will require a level of organization, mobilization, and disruption that most of us have never seen in our lifetimes. We have majority support for much of our politics. Yet, because we are politically weak, We lack the institutional means to translate that support into the exercise of real power. The system we live under is stuck in an anti-democratic feedback loop. Every single right-wing justice on the Supreme Court, save for Clarence Thomas, was appointed by a Republican president who took office despite losing the popular vote. The media now reports that Alito's leaked draft, and the fact that it was leaked, is undermining confidence in the court, an unseemly affair that exposes the judiciary's political nature. The law, of course, is always thoroughly political, and this ruling does have the potential to further erode the court's already dismal public legitimacy. But that's still nowhere near what we need. Fundamentally, it's not the anti-democratic institutions that are holding us back. It is not even the court's continued legitimacy, however diminished, that it holds among people. It's the nihilism and fatalism that convinces people who already hold this system in contempt that the order we live under is the only one that's possible, even as that same nihilism convinces growing numbers on the right to pursue an increasingly apocalyptic and authoritarian politics. The system has long since lost much of its legitimacy, but that's only part of the equation. What's missing is a plausible alternative that feels winnable and viscerally imaginable enough that people will organize and risk something to fight for it. In the absence of such a viable alternative, we will continue to see the left space demobilized even as the right continues to win people over to a bleak vision that powerfully resonates with the bleak trajectory that we've been on. We not only need to have this system be delegitimated, but also for another possible world to be legitimated for us to break through what now feels like an interminable interregnum. We've seen glimpses of that imaginable alternative in the organization, mobilization, and disruption that will need to win it over the past decade with Occupy, BLM, Bernie 2016, Standing Rock, Bernie 2020, the George Floyd mass movement, the resurgent labor militancy, and so much more. I don't know if Democrats' dreams will come true and that this decision will provoke enough outrage to reverse their bleak midterm election prospects. I certainly hope that we don't see Republicans sweep Congress. Things have been plenty bad enough with a razor-thin Democratic majority. But the only way to break out of a morass like this is for the sort of militancy that we currently see animating Amazon and Starbucks workers, for that to continue to spread across society as a whole. That is where I'm placing my hopes and my organizing time. This episode is from the archives, a really wonderful interview with Aziz Rana, Amna Akbar, and Marbury Staley butts on the Supreme Court that I first posted in October 2020, just after Ruth Bader Ginsburg, having failed to retire while Obama was president, handed her seat to Donald Trump to fill with Amy Coney Barrett. Listening back this week, one thing that caught my attention is that The various reforms we discussed that might check Supreme Court power, from court packing to ending judicial review, they all require support from the also counter-majoritarian U.S. Senate in a way that at least now in 2022 in the short term feels quite impossible to achieve. The democratization that the American system needs must be a really deep one indeed. If you listen to The Dig all the time, I would really appreciate it if you would take a quick moment to make a contribution at patreon.com slash the dig. It's important for us to give every episode away for free because obviously we want the maximum number of people possible to listen to what our guests have to say, regardless of your ability to pay. Our model is an unusual one in the realm of Patreon-supported podcasts, and it only works because those of you Dig listeners who can afford to contribute make a contribution. What's more, a contribution of any size at all gets you our weekly email newsletter, which I highly recommend checking out. It's all available on our website. A contribution of $10 or more a month gets you a book or books, a Dig tote bag, or a Dig mug, all emblazoned with our messy logo. Please do hit that pause button for just one moment and contribute an amount that makes sense to you at patreon.com slash the dig. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash the dig. Okay. Here's Aziz Rana, Amna akbar and Marbury Staley Butts. Aziz Rana is a law professor at Cornell, the author of the book The Two Faces of American Freedom, and a frequent presence here on the dig. Amna Akbar is a law professor at The Ohio State University who writes about today's left social movements, their experiments, and demands. Marbury Staley-Butts is a movement lawyer and executive director of Law for Black Lives. She is a member of the Movement for Black Lives and one of the architects behind the Vision for Black Lives policy platform and Black Mamas Bailouts. (laughs) These Rana, Amna Akbar, and Marbury Staley-Butts. Welcome to The Dig.
1: It's great to be here. Great to be
0: here.
2: Thank you so much.
0: Sam Moyne recently told Jacobin, quote, in the end, I think we'll have to read Ginsburg's legacy through the bet she made on her own longevity while leaving others to deal with the consequences. I'll start by stipulating that I think Moyne is, is right, but I want to ask you if you agree. Does... Ginsburg's refusal to exit when Obama was president and have and had a Democratic Senate and and her commitment to believing that her tenure on the court was somehow elevated above politics and the fact that that myopia has now given Trump another open seat to fill with a right winger. Does that all reveal that liberals have become the victims of their own veneration of the Supreme Court in general and Justice Ginsburg? In particular, and if so, what should we make of that?
3: So, um, I, I guess I'll I'll jump in first. So, what what Sam Moyne's talking about is the fact that when Obama won re-election in 2012, Democrats actually had control of the Senate, and because they had control of both the Senate and the presidency, it's very possible that you could have had Ginsburg step down and then that seat be replaced with a, a Democratic appointment, essentially. And I think it's true that a particular kind of political call not to do that at that moment will be part ultimately of Ginsburg's legacy. I don't think it's the sum total of her legacy, but it's certainly part of the story. And I also think it speaks to something really specific, basically, to an earlier era in American politics that even lasted into the mid-2010s, which is – This idea that there could be bipartisanship and bonhomie across the divide, that somebody like Ginsburg could be friends with Scalia, that you could presume that the Democrats and the Republicans would behave more or less the same, that they largely had the same Cold War vision of American identity. And so in a way, perhaps less a kind of pay on to the Supreme Court in particular, it was an embodiment of a a shared vision of the U.S. that was quickly sort of moving out of step with reality. But the one thing that I'd add is just a last point, which is I'm a little wary of personalizing this as about Ginsburg. I think in general, it's really tough for people that have power, that are exercising extreme power to give up that power. She served on the Supreme Court for 27 years. You know, John Paul Stevens served for 35 years. Scalia died serving in his 30th year. Clarence Thomas has been on the court for 29 years. I think, you know, my hope is that the legacy will be we should have no institutions in which individuals are able to accumulate this kind of sustained lifetime power. So the lesson should be that we have to, you know, basically fundamentally transform the nature of the court rather than focusing specifically on the person. Marbury?
2: Yeah, I mean, so I would agree with what um, has been said. I think... I would say, though, that I think the vision of kind of bipartisanship or this idea that somehow there were things above politics has always been a fallacy. So I don't think that ended with this kind of moment of polarization. There's a a James Baldwin quote that says, we can disagree and still love each other as long as the disagreement isn't rooted in my oppression or denial of my humanity or right to exist. And so I think the reality is that very often because the kind of people who serve on these courts are not directly impacted, that it, it it can all be kind of very civil and there can be a lot of decorum. But the reality is that these issues have always been deeply, deeply, deeply personal and have always been very divisive. And so I think in the legal profession, there's a general civility that happens. You have prosecutors who are besties with defense attorneys. And all of that, I think, is really disconcerting um, and disturbing for the folks who actually bear the brunt of these decisions. It's not civil, um, the things that happen as a result of these decisions. And so I think this kind of mythology of civility, this mythology of bipartisanship, it really has broken apart and the emperor has no clothes on. But the reality is that this existed long before this moment, right? And I completely agree that kind of having the same people who are very elite, who have very little kind of direct experiences with these systems in these positions of lifelong power is incredibly problematic. And I hope that this moment calls attention to just how undemocratic and how problematic the court is. But I do think that there is like this kind of running fallacy around the civility of our politics before this moment.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really good point This about the liberal RBG veneration is that it, it seems almost as though well as her close friendship with Scalia was not just tolerated, but almost celebrated as a sign of her virtue.
3: I think the focus on the nature of the friendship is actually one of the things that's particularly uh, destructive because it does play into the idea that the judges are somehow uh, above politics, that they actually share a kind of common experience, which is that they're um, high officials of the state committed to the law, engaged in a project of upholding the rule of law. And so the thing that Ginsburg and Scalia have in common is that they're both these sort of supreme figures, and they're supreme figures that participate in especially worthy forms of jurisprudential reasoning. And all of this, I think, feeds into a a kind of cult that is deeply anti-democratic. And so what I would say is, is that If along with raising basic questions about whether or not we should have lifetime judges enjoying this kind of power, if we can also have a conversation about the cult itself, I think that would be really valuable. If let's say in 10, 15, 20 years we honestly didn't know who was on the supreme court like we couldn't like nobody could pick out the names of the judges the justices that to me would be a sign of democratic health and the fact that depending on your political side we have these obsessions with the justices including you know former clerks standing in front of the court out of like a kind of you know honor to to the justice like that to me is a sign of democratic illness essentially
0: yeah, I think things are things are pretty ill at the moment. Longtime time SCOTUS reporter Linda Greenhouse at the time when people were trying to some people were trying to nudge RBG from the court under Obama. She wrote, quote, I think from her perspective, she is taking a long view of history, not a case by case one or a term-by-term one. I think she feels that it belittles and diminishes the court to have retirement so obviously timed for political reasons. And many liberal feminists push back against calls for for Ginsburg to step down. We heard it from Emily Bazelon at Slate, and, of course, from the famous or infamous uh, Notorious RBG book, which put it like so, quote, Historically, One way women have lost power is by being nudged out the door to make room for someone else. Not long before pop culture discovered RBG, liberal law professors and commentators began telling her the best thing she could do for what she cared about was to quit so that President Barack Obama could appoint a successor. RBG, ardently devoted to her job, has mostly brushed that dirt off her shoulder. Her refusal to meekly shuffle off the stage has been another public, high stakes act of defiance. What do you make of this liberal feminist politics that is so invested in one very elite woman in the face of such clearly catastrophic consequences for so many women?
1: I want to tie the prior conversation to this question because I think one of the things that points to um, one of the really marked things I think about our contemporary political moment is it's clear that Republicans are and have been for decades fighting for power. Um, and they are disciplined about. They know what their vision is, even if you know, even if there's kind of some diversity there. They have some shared shared things that they're fighting for. They're very disciplined about kind of using all the different tactics and strategies at their disposal to achieve it. And on the other hand, Democrats are very committed to discourse and, to some extent, to questions of representation and diversity. Um, and so, going back, for example, to the prior conversation about. Scalia and Ginsburg's friendship, I think one of the other reasons that that's celebrated is this idea that the law writ large, so not just the Supreme Court but law as a place of um, resolving disputes is in general the you know the way that it's celebrated in liberal discourse is a place where, you come, you make the arguments, and the best argument will prevail, right? So there's no questions about power. It's about kind of, you know, whatever, whoever can kind of, it's a marketplace of ideas, kind of reasoning, and whoever kind of has the best argument will prevail. And so once you take power out of the question, once you take politics out of the question, then you are going to cherish and value and celebrate the fact that you have an esteemed conservative jurist Scalia and an esteemed liberal jurist be able to talk to one another because they're going to be able to see past the politics and the power in order to kind of talk about, quote unquote, the real things that matter, which is, you know, ostensibly a system that has a kind of coherence that that kind of comes together, right? And that's kind of, in some sense, the liberal fantasy of our legal system in the United States. And so similarly, this liberal feminist uh, kind of concern or hesitation about the critique of Ginsburg's refusal to step down before feels similar to me in this way, which is that I think Republicans think very strategically about appointments to the Supreme Court, how young people are, how long they're going to be on the Supreme Court, and what is the right strategy to thinking about appointments to make sure that they have a hold on the court. Whereas for Democrats— You know, there's a bunch of other stuff in the mix and they're not so laser focused on any kind of large power moves or effectuating any particular vision. And so the question becomes reduced to whether or not we are insulting or undermining the agency of a particular woman that got appointed to the court decades ago, as opposed to thinking of a larger strategy of how to think about the Supreme Court, say, in the question of advancing women's liberation.
0: Republicans would appoint a 23-year-old ideologue if they could get away with it. (laughs) Marvray?
2: No, I mean, I think I mostly agree with what's been said. I'm holding on to this thought from both questions around the ways in which these conversations really sanitize the violence of the law that happens in the Supreme Court. And so whether it's a, um, a healthcare decision or an execution, um, or no, I mean the, the array of things that the Supreme Court gets to decide that, that enact violence on communities, I think is really profound. And all of this kind of civility, these discussions around like what become objective objective um, conversations, like, oh, this is about, you know, this kind of objective truth or this objective high or constitutional like veneration, um, I think really erase and sanitize just how violent many of these decisions are. And so I think the the kind of feminist liberal critique, which is very kind of second wave feminist to me, that doesn't incorporate like a more intersectional approach, um, which I think is important, reflects the same kind of thing of like really sanitizing the ways in which the actual decisions, the, the, the impact of this decision is going to have on communities um, that are left out of any of these discussions. Aziz? Yeah,
3: it it reminds me a little bit, actually, of the conversations that that occurred right after Obama left office about how he was using his post-presidency, you know, giving high profile like speeches to corporations where he's getting paid huge amounts of money, like hanging out on um, private islands with billionaires. And, you know, it's it's a little bit apples and oranges. But, you know, one of the criticisms of pushback was like, well, wait a second, why nobody was making these arguments previously when we had white presidents, and now that we have an African American president, it's inappropriate to make these arguments. And I think, in a sense, that kind of criticism faced the same sorts of problems that Umno was highlighting, which is really dis- failing to distinguish between the person and the question of power that's being represented and reproduced. And so I think it's appropriate, on the one hand, to you know to say that well Ginsburg has a right to make choices about how she wants to pursue her own professional career, while on the other hand saying there are potential lasting problems with the the particular kind of power implications of the choices that get made.
2: Just the point that's been made, I think that it points out how glaringly unjust the the current structure is and so the fact that a person can make that decision and that the impact of that is what it's going to be I think speaks to the most systemic problem of having a court the way that we have it which I assume is your next question but I think that it's really important just to name that of like that to even be able to make that decision on your own to have that autonomy like I'm going to solve out my entire life and then leave and let there be a six majority that will have all these other implications the the right to do that is part of I think the kind of original sin of our constitution but also um, I think it's really problematic for for this institution, its legitimacy.
0: Why is there no meaningful liberal or left counterpart to the, the Federalist Society? Why is it that conservatives, as everyone has mentioned so many times totally correctly, have this just cold-blooded, real politic approach to the courts, even with all their pretense to, to being committed to originalism and textualism and, and, and whatnot, whereas liberal reverence for the judiciary really seems to preclude them from taking that sort of approach?
3: Why? Why? So I was going to say that um, I do think the story is a little bit more complicated, that there have been efforts basically since 2000 to create not left, but like liberal alternatives to the Federalist Society. And the most kind of well-known example of this is something called the American Constitution Society that has chapters across campuses um, at law schools in the U.S. And I think some of this has to do with a kind of bet that was made within the liberal legal establishment at elite schools and elsewhere, which was, you know, demography is basically on our side. We're going to be winning elections for the long term. And if we win these elections, we basically are going to be able over the long term to to shape who's on the court. And so the arguments that we develop as a matter of constitutional interpretation are basically going to win. And it's going to end up strengthening ACS, the ACS will be a a kind of mechanism that'll get people clerkships or that will shape who's on the judiciary. And I do want to say that, like, that bet was very close to actually winning in the sense that, like, imagine Gore gets elected in 2000 and Clinton gets elected in 2016. It's very possible that you could have had a center left reshaping of the federal judiciary with institutions like the ACS stronger in terms. But basically, because those two historical events did not occur, that it really ended up undermining the institutional power of these mechanisms that existed to put sort of left leading people into clerkships, have young judges on the courts, etc. And so it's meant that today now we're left with the fact that basically those kinds of internal institutions are really weak. And the center left has to confront really the big structural problems of the court generally.
1: Let me see if I can put out a, slightly, a view that's slightly in tension to that. I mean, I don't disagree with anything that Aziz said, but it seems to me that there's a way in which the liberal veneration of the constitution and the centralization of the courts and litigation as a central strategy to advance Liberal causes uh, for the last several decades, in kind of conversation with the ongoing onslaught by neoliberalism of everyday people's access to meaningful work and adequate wages, and not having routine contact with the police or being thrown into jail and prison, means that through the last few decades that Aziz is talking about, our former formal institutions of government whether that's, you know, courts or Congress or president, generally have kind of had a rightward drift. Whereas, you know, market, the market and corporate power have been on the rise and everyday people's reality is becoming more and more difficult, more and more precarious. Okay, so that's part one. The second part of that I think is important um, to kind of tease out and think about is this, is that I think because a lot of the liberal strategy or the kind of center-left progressive kind of strategy around, you know, justice struggles or trying to square kind of the contradictions of the promise of the United States and the reality for most people has been to focus on the courts. One of the implications of focusing on the courts as a way to advance your cause is that you focus all of your firepower on convincing elites right so people often say that one of the problems with law is that it depoliticizes conflicts and it's many way, there are many ways that it does that but one of the central ways that it does that is that it makes the mo- one of the most important forums for you know fights over uh, large scale deep fundamental questions um, in the in a, in forums of you know in judicial forums so in front of courts and in front of elite powerful actors and so as a result you kind of forego mass political struggle, you forego engaging uh, the public in kind of, you know, thinking or rethinking what it is that we are fighting about or what we're about. Um, And so I think the combination of those things, you know, on the one hand, I compl- I see what Aziz is saying that, you know, maybe ACS would some, you know, if if popular vote prevailed or if Gore fought harder, um, you know, may- we, we would probably be in a different situation in some sense. But I also think there are deeper dynamics at play that suggest to me that we wouldn't be in that different of a place.
3: Yeah. So I, just just to clarify, I, I think it's, Amna's uh, um, point is absolutely right. So I would just distinguish between what I'm describing is basically like the centrist strategy and what an emancipatory left politics would be, which actually requires pretty fundamentally transforming the constitutional system. I, the point that I just make is that there's a way in which we think, oh, like, you know, the center had no strategy. They kind of had a strategy. It just, it failed pretty miserably, because, in part because of some of these contingent events. But let's say Gore had won or Clinton had won. That would not actually... Get us toward the kind of mandatory project that that we would need, because it's not one that would be built around, you know, making sure that we have like the right judges in office or that we just change like the the particulars of the constitutional interpretation. So I guess I just read the question to be about, you know, why is it that the center doesn't have institutions that look like the the, the federalist society? But I totally agree about the general critique of uh, of the center's approach.
1: And it's just to say that I think
2: liberalism would be in crisis right now either way.
3: Yeah, totally.
2: I have amens for all of that, especially I think the last piece of that, which is that whether or not um, the central left had been successful in its bets, um, we would still be in crisis. I think... I mean, the other reality, I think, though, is the center left was also betting on the legitimacy of a lot of different institutions that have failed us. So the, the court being one of them, but the idea that whether it's this census moment that we are in, whether it is the complete madness around this election, that we'll continue to see that there have been a series of bets on the legitimacy of institutions that have failed the center left um, that I think we should take note of. <laughs> um, but I also think the reality is that you know the 1960s in the court was an operation, that historically the court has always been an enemy of the people, whether it is around slavery, in which it required an armed war to decry and to really push back the court's decision, whether it was around sterilization and disability justice and rights and the ability to sterilize Black and Brown people with disabilities, whether it was around workers' rights during the lockdown. I mean, over and over again, it is a rarity for the court to be on the side. And when it is on the side of the people, it is because there has been literally, normally, decades of people in the street, of protests, um, of folks operating power in that way. And so, I think it. Really Really it's important for us to say that the bet the center made on the court um was a failing one anyway because the reality is that the court has continued to since its inception and it was meant to fail people um who are on the side i think of justice and power um for those who are often most oppressed and left out of these institutions that is no accident and there was not a good bet <laughs> that would have i think allowed them to operate um power in that way but again that's the project of the left not the center left so i think that that's
0: I think Marbury is making a really important point here, which is that the Warren court, I think, looms really large in shaping people's understanding, or maybe better put, misunderstanding of of the Supreme Court as an institution, and why liberals, and to a certain extent very much leftists, I think, have also have, have, have long looked to the court to protect minorities against the tyranny of the majority. But it makes it really hard for people to understand, as Marbury just said, that this is an exception to the rule for a generally reactionary institution and obscures the fact that it was mass democratic politics of the New Deal, civil rights, great society era that made the Warren court what it was. But then on top of that, even many liberals, and I'm thinking about Yasha Munk's book, which I read to to review a, a few years ago, really exaggerate the Warren court's role in civil rights and other struggles as if it wasn't in reality very much moved forward directly by mass action and legislation that resulted from mass action. Following up on, on what Marbury said, Aziz and Amna, how do you see the the historic role of the Warren Court then and now, throughout the past half century, shaping liberal politics around around the Supreme Court and the judiciary in general?
3: Yeah, I think this is really significant, and I think it's significant in part because you know today when we have conversations about the Constitution. Basically, these are conversations about the court and about court jurisprudence, like the cases before the court. So Constitution and court, basically, Supreme Court more or less just get combined together. And the appropriate person that you turn to, you know, tell me about what's going on with respect to the Constitution, is a, a constitutional law professor. So... Uh, unfortunately like that's 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 uh my own professional <laughs> setting but I think it's it's a kind of an absurd it's an absurd situation where our entire conversation about the Constitution takes place through what's set on the court and it has these like privileged interlocutors for these law professor intermediaries and it's just really I think worthwhile noting that that's not remotely always been the case so that even in law legal education, you know, constitutional law was rarely taught when legal education started in this country. And that constitutional law is required class didn't basically emerge until the 1920s and the 1930s. Most of constitu- most of legal education was about private common law subjects. So things like torts, property, contracts. And where you studied, if you were going to study as a matter of higher education, like the constitution, it was going to be in history classes or in political science classes, because it wouldn't make any sense... To understand the Constitution just by focusing on what, like, Supreme Court justices said, because the Constitution is a massive system of design. It's a legal political order that has all of these decision-making consequences. And so, you know, reading cases by judges wasn't going to help you answer those questions, and even rights. Like, the way that socialists and New Dealers thought about rights was as much guaranteed by mass movements through amendment and legislative action as by the courts. Because the history of the courts, as Marbury said, was a really negative history of sustaining privilege in virtually every imaginable way that you can think of. Um, And so, you know, this is all a, a second half of the 20th century development, where it's in that period that the most famous law professors become constitutional law professors. That the court is able to claim this authority as the pr- protector of rights. And there's a very specific kind of Cold War story tied to not just the Warren Court era, Brown versus Board of Education, but also to the politics around the Soviet Union that has a lot to do with this.
0: One interesting thing about the Warren Court is that it's a touchstone for conservatives too. But the right learned this political lesson from the Warren Court, whereas liberals learned like an anti political lesson. The right has since then pursued the strategy of condemning liberal activist judges as a reaction to Warren court era reforms all the way back to to 1961 when the John Birch Society launched its Impeach Earl Warren campaign, which covered this country with billboards saying just that. And the right has amazingly constructed the figure of the liberal activist judge. To mobilize a political program behind developing and securing appointments for hard right judges who, ironically but revealingly, pursue conservative activism on the court. I guess this is sort of returning to that real politic question of like how did this dynamic, where everyone talks about the court as uh, this thing that's above politics, but only liberals seem to actually believe that?
1: I've been thinking about this recently. The idea that law is above politics, separate from politics is central to law's legitimacy in the United States. But whereas liberals seem to buy that myth, conservatives seem to understand that it's a myth in service of the legitimacy of the system, but they don't kind of act accordingly. So for example, one of the kind of central, you know, kind of attributes of law, one of the things that we're supposed to celebrate about it is the idea of finality, right? So you have a legal dispute and then a court decides it, and that's kind of the final decision. And if you believe in finality, then, you know, that's kind of the last word and that's the end of it. Whereas if you kind of understand that any particular court decision is a particular court decision in that moment, um, you know, you might think about it very differently. So for example, with Roe versus Wade, liberals, progressives, the left, women get that victory of having um, the right to an abortion. And then ever since then, conservatives have been fighting to have Roe versus Wade overturned because they understand that like any other judicial decision, it's a contingent decision produced in a particular political context uh, with particular parties before the courts and that there are strategies and ways to kind of undo that. Um, and I think because liberals don't see law as a terrain or form of political struggle, they kind of they have kind of foregone that um, in as serious, deep or meaningful ways as conservatives – Um, I did want to say about the Warren Court, because, of course, one of the things that's celebrated about the Warren Court is the criminal procedure revolution, right? That's what it's often called, the idea that the court stepped in on behalf of, quote-unquote, criminal defendants um, to make the criminal justice system, so-called, more just and more fair. And, of course, one of the things that we've seen is that since the Warren Court Rights Revolution is precisely when you see the explosion in prison and jail infrastructure around the country, the explosion of spending on police, um, and really the rise of mass incarceration, mass criminalization, and policing. And so um, as much as I think the questions and strategies around rights are very complicated, I think one of the really difficult takeaways from the kind of material footprint that we can see and that we experience now from the Warren Court's Jurisprudence on Criminal Procedure is that actually when rights attach to state violence, that it legitimates exercise of that state violence for a lot of the public, and it authorizes its exponential expansion.
0: Yeah, Marbury, I wanted to to ask you about this, because one of the most glaring absences in so much of the debate over the court is RBG passed amid a year with the largest mass street protest movement in in U.S. history, specifically against police violence in the carceral state. And even though we have an Eighth Amendment that ostensibly bars cruel and unusual punishment, the judiciary has done next to nothing to stop the rise of mass incarceration over the past half century. There was that one case around California decarceration. That's the only thing that, that comes to mind for me as something substantial done. But otherwise, they've, they've presided over the rise of mass incarceration, Ginsburg very much included. What does it reveal about the courts that their involvements in questions of criminal justice, really the most important way that that, that everyday people confront the judiciary, the, the criminal justice system, that those questions have been all but limited to individual defendant due process rights while while failing to do anything to stop this country's unprecedented system of mass human caging?
2: I mean, it's not just that. It's also that the court has over and over again chosen to maintain and to protect violent actors inside of it, right? So whether that's prosecutors around misconduct, whether that's the invention um, of qualifying immunity, like over and over again, liberal and conservative justices have both decided and engaged in really a project of building up the legitimacy of caging people at Alarming rates, right? And what I think it tells us is the failure of these institutions, even when they are operated and captained by folks who we consider to be liberal. And I think that that disconnect is A around accountability, that the court, both the court kind of that you go to um, in your county or your city um, or the Supreme Court, really lacks all accountability to the folks who it's supposed to be serving and to whom it says that it owes justice. Um, but I think the reality is that we've seen, and whether it's in Ginsburg's judgments, um, or quite frankly the Warren Court, which really chose uh procedural um over substance. And over and over again decided that if we awarded people a process, that we didn't have to give them justice. And I think that the, the attachment, and I think Amna said this, but the attachment and the really like the devotion to a constitution that has, I think, in many ways outlived its utility by these judges, is I think part of the the problem that we're seeing. There really weren't a moment where what's being called for is a complete evacuation of what came before. Um, And that these institutions, whether it's the Supreme Court or the Constitution, were both built to do what they're doing, which is to keep um, and protect elite folks. I think um, Aziz said this of kind of like the court is maintaining history by any logic possible. And other institutions are maintaining are maintaining status quo um, in similar ways. And so I think it's really important that we not mistake if if we are on a project of actual. And for me, it's a project of abolition um, to get rid of the prison industrial complex. The court will not be our friend in that, even if there are, quote, unquote, liberal judges on it. Um, and we've seen over and over again decisions that really have cemented the relationship between police, prosecutors and judges um, in opposition to the the millions of folks who are being caged.
0: Aziz, is there is there a more glaring indictment of, of liberal law without politics than mass incarceration?
3: No, I, th- I think that's um, that's absolutely right. And, you know, part of what I would say here is that. It really highlights, I think, one of the, the constitutive flaws of the liberal imagination that ties back to, you know, the, the initial question about how, in a sense, liberals got, you know, were defeated politically in the story around the court, is the profound anti populism of of liberal politics. So, from the mid twentieth century all the way to to Clinton, you know, and Obama. Um, And by this, I mean that there is a story that became really central to liberal politics that where is where does mass violence come from? It's not, you know, the violence that's perpetrated by the state through things like mass incarceration or the treatment of migrant communities or like during the Red Scare, the massive state crackdowns on radical dissidents, especially African-Americans and those in the labor movement, that mass violence comes from below. It's sort of like that there's a demonization of the people. And they're the primary folks that are threats to rights. And if they're the primary folks that are threats to rights, then the best way to ensure the protection of rights is to have decision making in incredibly insulated arenas like the court that are elite, that are culturally controlled by elite institutions that circulate the same set of people. And, you know, I think this is part of the, we were talking about like the, the bet that the center-left made. This is part of the reason why they focused on you know attempting to make changes at the margins when it comes to constitutional jurisprudence, because the other option, the left option, is mass democratic politics that's properly about altering the terms of the existing state. And in a sense, if you really are fearful of the people writ large, and you have this story about, like well, rights are best protected by these insulated actors then you take the Warren court era, even the, all of its problems as, well, that's an indicator of the success of the story. And then you kind of hold firm to it. And anytime you see any critiques of the court from the left or the right, that's like a threat to the very possibility of of rights talk. Um, so I think that the, the kind of embedded anti-populism sort of explains why, you know, liberals basically fail to see state violence and see violence as something that's only you know, a product of uh, popular energy.
1: I mean, meanwhile, the libertarian hold on conservative and Republican politics is on the rise, right? And so the violence of an extractive quality of the market is erased from legal discourse and, you know, politics more broadly. You know, those puzzle pieces fit together in an interesting way.
0: Yeah, that's a really important point. Jed Purdy's called it the bosses. Constitution. But we always have Supreme Court debates focused on so-called social issues. I find the whole concept and uh, category of social issues absurd. But but we, we think about abortion. We think about gay rights. We do not think about economic politics, even as with arbitration law, right-wing attacks on the redistributive state, which almost succeeded with over, overturning Obamacare, came that close and may, where, may very well happen now. The successful move to undercut public employees' collective Bargaining rights. Why? I'm going to follow up on you. Just what you just said there. Why is it that we don't see so clearly the economic politics of of the court?
1: I mean, I think um, Jed and others have written about this uh, in terms of the the rise in the 20th century. Aziz might be able to recount this better than I can. But the rise in the 20th century of what they call um, the 20th century synthesis, central to which is the domination, the rise of law and economics and the domination of this idea that economics and politics is separate and that the proper kind of questions, as you were gesturing at, for um, the law and for legal inquiry is about questions of state violence and that questions of power and distribution become irrelevant to legal and constitutional debates. Marbrey Another
3: thing that I guess I, I would add here, too, is that that there's a real way in which the the debates about the court have been set by the presumption that there was a mid mid 20th century settlement. There's like a liberal settlement that basically everybody more or less agrees to, and this is a settlement that has to do with the basic constitutionality of of the New Deal order, and that that's something that's that's like kind of taken for granted. And you know, I think. A lot of what we've seen over the last few decades is a sustained kind of, you know, right-wing basically uh, uprooting of that settlement. But there's a way in which there remains a kind of presumption that we still more or less live in that do-deal order. And the things that we primarily fight about are questions of of membership and inclusion. And so it essentially occludes the extent to which there's been a a really fundamental transformation of the nature of the state over the last 30, 40 years that are directly connected to to questions of membership, that these two things can't actually be separated. And, you know, I think there's a clear way in which liberals have participated in this, because the simple truth is that liberals have largely taken on board a basic assumption about the legitimacy of market capitalism. They don't see the question about, like, the, about about social democracy and the welfare state is like the central, central battleground of political struggle. And, you know, many of the cases that we can think of as kind of pro-business cases creating the new lockdown are are cases in which you have some centrist support on the court for, these are not necessarily five, four decisions. Um, So all of these are, I think, puzzle pieces that end up fitting together.
2: Yeah, I would just, I would amen all of that. I think that it's a really important, like, when we talk about kind of sites of violence, the economic violence is important, and this reality that like the, the reality is that the kind of centralist project includes the the kind of co-option of the state by right? corporations. It includes those things that are happening. That those the kind of the middle of the of the left and the right are both um, complicit in that project.
0: Yeah, Marbury, Mar- Mar- I think you're entirely right, and that might actually be the most succinct answer to the question of of why so-called social issues are so visible while other issues are so invisible it's because so-called social issues are the issues it, uh, upon which you see the clearest distinction between the Democratic and Republican establishment issues like abortion or or gay rights on the very narrowly construed conception around gay merit, rights to marriage and whatnot um, but speaking of abortion obviously that's always at the center of debate over the courts but what has this court-centric reproductive rights politics, what does it have to show for itself given that conservative states have already all but outlawed abortion and abortion has never been a right guaranteed for many poor women in this country, given the Hyde Amendment that Joe Biden supported until I think maybe just this year. And then like a related question on top of that is what you make of Ginsburg's one time heterodox criticism of Roe as having depoliticized basically kind of, I think her critique is that it sort of created the, it fomented the anti-abortion reaction uh, while while depoliticizing. Was it that it, it, I know that it was that it excited the reaction, but did
3: she also believe it depoliticized abortion rights politics? So she argued that she thought that you'd probably have um, stronger support on the ground if you'd allowed state legislatures to sort of continue as they were going. So like New York State, for example, was liberalizing abortion right. laws. And that in a way, what ended up happening by the Supreme Court stepping in is it produced a, it, it helped foment counter movement and backlash that over the long run arrested the kinds of rights promotion that were taking that was taking place at the state level.
0: Right. So that that's fascinating because her critique seems rather ironic, given that it echoes, I think, some of the left critique of the very sort of liberal judicial SCOTUS veneration that has surrounded Her death in particular. So what does everyone make of abortion politics in the court and Ginsburg's one-time critique?
2: I mean, one thing that I think is striking about the court is how um, prominent it is, but also how ineffective it can be. So I think whether it is abortion or Brown v. Board, um, or even we can go all the way back to kind of Jackson and, and indigenous rights, that over and over again, folks a decision from the court doesn't actually equal, it doesn't kind of self-create um an answer, right? And that I think it also is a a moment well, we can reflect on the power of people, right? That things happen, that that things manifest themselves, that, that people fight for rights and they're not given. And so whether it's Brown people, Board, I mean, that's right, if you're in Alabama, Roe v. Wade means almost nothing to you, right? There's like, I think, one place you can get an abortion in Alabama after a 48 hour. Like, it's just the obstacles are insurmountable if you're trying to maintain a job and your life. And at the same time, Brown v. Board comes down and we have schools that are more segregated today than they were in the 60s. And so I think the reality is that the, the court has a lot of kind of, performative decisions around social issues. And the, I mean, the, the irony, I think, may be that when it comes to the corporate stuff we just discussed, it's a much more effective body <laughs> in terms of those things actually um, coming to fruition. But I think the reality is that a lot of these other rights are, are symbolic wins that happen and that capture our attention and, and our distractions um, from other issues. But I, I mean, the efficacy of the court, I think, is an ongoing question. Um, when it comes to and I don't mean to say that as if it's not a huge threat that like when decisions are made that they don't limit or shut down rights, but an opening of rights um, doesn't manifest itself. And, and I think it also is a really important reminder that not only are these decisions animated by mass action, but they are also um, they are executed by mass action. And so it really is the power of people who organize, who both pressure the court to make decisions as well as then make sure decisions are actually implemented that that is like that is a common through line that's required um, of I think all of these
3: yeah. so I, I was gonna say that I also think though that um, this is an opportunity I mean, so one of the pushbacks I would have against Ginsburg is that, You know, in a way, what what that analysis does is it still fetishizes the states and federalism and local politics. I mean, the simple truth is that the U.S. is a country where you have large majorities that actually support reproductive rights, including the right to abortion. But we have a constitutional system that makes it very, very difficult for mass popular sentiment to actually shape the nature of our you know, fundamental laws. So part of the problem with the court and why there's so much of a focus on it is we basically have the hardest constitution in the world to amend as a formal matter. So you need to get two thirds in Congress and then you need to have three fourths of the states. And that means that all of the conversation about constitutional change ends up going into the the arena of the courts. So, you know,
0: rather than to the question of how to organize constituent power.
3: Exactly. So like, You know, it shouldn't be the case that, like, you know, your right to abortion is dependent on what state you live in. Like, it should be the case that you have mass movements of organized people that are able to impose as a matter of national policy ends that are consistent with, with what amounts to social justice. And just thinking about, like, Marbury's point with business. So why is it that when the court basically... You know, essentially reimposes business rights in ways that really undermine union organizing through some of the recent Supreme Court decisions, or even like going all the way back to like um, upholding defenses of things like bans on secondary boycotts and picketing. Like, Why does that have effect? That has effect because corporations are able to assert national power through the point of production. And what's happened instead is we have a constitutional system that allows that corporate power to operate nationally while fracturing people power through an incredibly undemocratic electoral process. So whatever happens at the court, you know, if you you win this incredibly important victory, and I still think like Rose an important victory, but it ends up being Pyrrhic because as a matter of practical electoral strength, you know, it's Essentially, who has abortion rights remains dependent on whether or not where you live, whether or not you have medical contacts and what what your class status is. Can you travel? Amna?
1: I mean, I think once you account for all of the kind of structural dimensions of our formal system of government, there are just so many roadblocks to mass, not just mass politics, but more precisely, I mean, picking up where Aziz was leaving off to mass opinion kind of translating into legislation or national policy. I don't know. It was one of the things in thinking about this question about how should the left think about the Supreme Court? You know, I think on the one hand, it is absolutely true that the Supreme Court is an undemocratic institution and we should be imagining ways to diminish its centrality in our political order. And yet, at the same time, you know, it's not like Congress or the state legislatures or the president or our governors are that are healthy or that there's like an easy way to kind of influence for, you know, mass politics to influence them. There's such a kind of stranglehold on uh, U.S. politics by organized money and by elites that You know, there's just so many different hurdles to kind of get through.
3: I was going to add one other thing about the rights position here. I think it's really important to just highlight how deeply cynical and internally inconsistent the rights critique of the Supreme Court is activist consistent. Because it's not like what the rights arguing is you know, this Supreme Court is undemocratic, lifetime judges, activist judges. And so, you know what we should do? We should have national policy through mass referendum that actually represents popular sentiment. Instead, what they want to do is basically take advantage of all of the minority rule dimensions that exist everywhere else (laughs) in the political system.
0: The Electoral College, the Senate. the, The
3: Electoral College, state legislatures and gerrymandering use all of those pressures to then basically transform the court to maintain permanent minority rule and then say that the things that the judges are doing, conservative judges, which is like totally activist judging. So, you know, defending the rights of corporations, striking down, you know, the rights of most, uh, uh, most communities that, that find themselves oppressed, like maintaining protections for state violence and impunity for state actors, that all of that is just the law, you know? That it's, that is just, none of that is activists. That's just like calling quote unquote balls and strikes to use the the baseball metaphor that's always invoked. So, you know, there's a real way in which the rights basically both been able to try to claim the mantle of asserting kind of like they, they're speaking for the people against this activist court while systematically imposing a project of sustained minority rule that gets us to the point where we are today.
0: Yeah, I mean the, the right is truly ruthless. Something we shouldn't lose sight of in uh, critiquing liberals, um, and and they but they couldn't be less concerned about the appearance of hypocrisy because on some level, the level where it counts, it's not really hypocritical. It's a consi- it's a consistent project of reaction of shoring up social and economic racial hierarchy.
2: And I mean, it's, it's a project that goes back to the origins of our country, right? Like keeping the we and we, the people as small as possible <laughs> to include we, the landowners, we, the, the business owners, we, the whites, we, the, all the things. So I think it's, it's a long project. It's only, it's not a, a new phenomenon. And they have the support of the constitution and the kind of structure of the country behind them, because that was also the project of our founders was to keep the we, for the most part, um, as small as possible.
0: Yeah, that, that, that brings me to a, a question that I wanted to ask, which is, do conservatives just have a built-in advantage in these liberal versus conservative fights over the courts and the Constitution, given that it's a fundamentally conservative, anti-democratic constitution crafted by framers who conceived of we the people in these incredibly circumscribed terms that excluded black people— Native people,
3: women, even poor whites.
1: Aziz, I think you wrote a book about this, so. <laughs>
3: <laughs> you know, so my, my answer is yes, which is why I think that, you know, to me, like a big difference between the left critique and the liberal critique is, so, you know, the liberal focus right now is on, okay, maybe we need some court reform, because the, the Republicans have played fast and loose with nomination processes, maybe the court should be expanded, etc. But there's still a real desire to keep the conversation about the court separate from the conversation about the underlying constitutional system. And I think the simple truth is that the Constitution in practice has been a sustained instrument for the preservation of various forms of elite rule. And so one way to put like uh, put it like concretely today is that it is simply the truth that the Republican Party has views that are not majority views like the actual set of objectives pursued by the Republican Party does not have majority support and the solution that the Republican Party has come up to come up with to that problem is essentially to try to take advantage of all of the ways embedded in the constitutional system to sustain power with a minority coalition. And the fact that we can have a situation now where, you know, we'll just think about this concretely. Over the last 50 years, Democrats have nominated four justices to the Supreme Court total Democratic presidents. Trump is about to nominate his third, despite the fact that he did not win the majority vote. Six of the last seven presidential elections have been won. Uh, the majority vote has been won by Democrats
0: and I bet the Senate and I bet the net Senate vote was for Dem- for Democrats but you still get a Republican majority
3: We're moving toward a situation where 70% of the population lives in 15 of the states So you can have longstanding control of the Senate basically blocking popular support popularly backed you know positions. Uh, this is even not getting to the questions about gerrymandering and voter suppression, all of that stuff. You can have a majority control in the Senate while essentially having really bare, like a bare kind of a very small minority of, of popular support. These are all things that are embedded in the structure of the Constitution that any system, any like any popularly organized movement that's an insurgent movement on on behalf of democracy has to confront. And that's been there since the very founding. And it was a conscious set of decisions made by the framers. And it's why really any genuinely democratic mass movement has to begin from the perspective of radical constitutional transformation.
0: Ginsburg's death and the Republican push to install Barrett has suddenly pushed not only court packing, but also D.C. statehood ending the filibuster. Other more dramatic institutional reforms into the center of liberal discourse in a way that I can't remember ever seeing. What what do you all make of this dramatic shift on the courts in particular and the anti-democratic state in general and how and how should the left relate to it?
1: I mean in some sense it feels like an extension or deepening of the crisis that liberals and democrats have been facing since Trump's election um, to kind of face these long-standing, you know, the history of our country, for example, but also myths that sustain the order in the way that it is. And so I think it's a good sign that we are seeing more debate about how to refashion the court because the Supreme court as kind of the embodiment of law above politics, once that becomes subject to debate about reform. Um, and I still don't really have a sense of how wide ranging um, or how, let, let's say how, um, you know, how many people are actually debating it. Seem, you're, I think you're right that in the mainstream media and certainly in the left um, media kind of sphere you do see you know these kind of different reforms being debated. Um, I don't have a great sense whether or not they're being taken seriously at all by the mainstream Democratic party but it all seems good in the sense that it reflects an understanding that the Supreme Court is political, that law is political, And that even the venerated institution that to kind of maintain its hold on the idea that it's apolitical, you know, uh, uh, presumably shouldn't be changed, that even that kind of needs to be rethought. Um, But I think the divide between the liberal reform proposals and the left ones um, are kind of captured by the, you know, kind of the the traditional divide between a reformist approach versus a non-reformist approach, which is to say that. The liberal or reformist approach to thinking about court reform is to think about what do we do to re this institution, to reinstall some sense of balance into it, um, you know, to have a Ginsburg there and a Scalia there so that they can go to India together and then talk about it later and that sort of thing. Um, whereas the left needs to be and is, I think, thinking about reforms that diminish the Supreme Court's power and therefore diminish elite rule over politics in the country um, and to create more space for mass politics. And so um, Sam Moyne has been writing about this, um, about, you know, reforms that would uh, strip jurisdiction of the court over particular kinds of issues or to call for supermajorities. So right now, uh, five justices have to vote to take a case before the Supreme Court takes a case. We, that could be changed to six or seven votes. Um, and so what are the kind of reforms that will make it harder for the court to uh, invalidate, for example, the Green New Deal, if that ever gets passed?
0: Yeah. And I do want to get in the nuts and bolts of these different reform proposals. But I do think, at least on the like political discursive level, that even if court packing is not the the, the right court reform it does seem like an improvement over the mythology surrounding impeachment you know that the idea that the the, the constitution law enforcement and the national security state would save liberals this seems better
3: uh he... <laughs> yeah no I, I, I yeah I, I agree with that which is so I t- totally second what Umna said and I hope we can get into this because to me like the big di- the big difference between the left and sort of liberal center left lane is precisely around what she was referring to as like non-reformist reform. So the left, the reason why you care about these reforms is because you're trying to improvise a new emancipatory social order out, out of the old. You're trying to create conditions where it's harder for the existing social order to reproduce itself. And that means your primary interest is in expanding the bargaining and political power of oppressed groups of your own meaningful constituencies, which are not necessarily tied to the Democratic Party or encapsulated by the Democratic Party. But, you know, I will say that like one of the things that's interesting about this moment is as the Republican Party basically moves more wholeheartedly toward just, you know, embracing minority rule so that it's going to it realizes it has a quote unquote demographic problem. And the way it's going to address that is by trying to take advantage of Anti democratic institutions to be able to permanently hold on to power even after it can no longer win elections. That's the story of the court. There's a clear partisan um, alignment of interest with the Democratic Party and projects of democracy. And I think that's where HR1, in a sense, comes from, and even the discussions now about court reform that it is in the partisan interest of the Democratic Party to figure out ways to actually meaningfully expand. And in like enfranchise people that are being disenfranchised. That doesn't mean, though, that the folks that are within the Democratic Party, again, like necessarily have the same overarching objectives as what a left project would be. But it does mean that there's a kind of common cause around a certain set of policies.
1: I guess I was thinking about this last night. How do you square that with their opposition to the rising left wing within the party? like their opposition to AOC and Ilhan and the squad, who, who are mobilizing, I think, more of, you know, they're giving a voice to the mass politics that are locked out of federal, you know, out of congressional debates um, or, you know, having a real possibility to become enacted. Um, and they're mobilizing new voters, a more diverse constituency, all of those things. And yet the Democratic Party is fighting them tooth and nail.
3: So to me, I think like part of this is um, sort of like the difference between Democratic Party establishment support for things like ending felony disenfranchisement and the fact that like in New York State or, you know.
2: Not, not really ending, but <laughs> lessening. Lessening.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So willingness to take positions that the tr- Democratic Party until very recently had just not had on the table remotely at all. And at the same time, like what we're seeing in New York State with um, like the effort, for example, by Cuomo and the the Democratic Party leadership to crush like third parties like the Working Families Party or the desire of the Democratic Party leadership to to protect incumbents and sort of limit the possibility of like primary challenges. And in a way, it's a difference between like how you conceive of the voter and then like what are the options that are presented to the voter? So, like, you can think that, hey, this is a voting base that's going to be voting Democratic. And at the same time, you can think, well, what I have, there's lots of other instruments at my disposal to perhaps shape the range of Democratic Party choices that, like, this particular voter might have, if that makes sense. So I think you can, you know, like, I could imagine a particular kind of center-left Democrat sort of thinking about these two moves, like you need an expanded electorate to defeat Republicans and maintain your permanent power. And then you can take advantage of lots of other instruments and tools to shape the internal terms of what choices are being presented to the Democratic Party's own electorate.
1: This is Sarah Jaffe, and you are listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, my favorite podcast for thoughtful discussions on the US left and beyond. And you can support it on patreon.com.
0: This episode of The Dig, like every episode of The Dig, is produced in partnership with Jacobin Magazine. Jacobin is an incredible publication, and you've probably seen a lot of what they've published online. But they also have a really beautiful print magazine. It comes out quarterly and has well over 100 pages packed with illustrations, infographics, and some of the best graphic design in the country. Dig listeners can join 50,000 Jacobin subscribers developing socialist political thought and debate for just $15 a year. $15 gets you an entire year of Jacobin in print and access to the magazine's entire back catalog. If you've never subscribed to Jacobin before, you can access this deal by going to bit.ly digjacobin. All lowercase. That's bitly slash dig Jacobin. B i t dot l y dig Jacobin. All lowercase. Let's clarify some of these distinctions between liberal and left proposals to democratize or, in the liberal case, more rebalance the court. I'm gonna uh, brought them up earlier, but we haven't really. Distinguish them. Court packing, obviously, is the most the one that has gotten the most attention amongst liberals. But we've seen people on the left argue that we need to get rid of judicial supremacy in a more fundamental check judicial supremacy in more in more fundamental ways by ending judicial review or, as as I mentioned, requiring like a super majority on the Supreme Court to strike down a law. Given that it is court packing that's getting so much of the energy behind it at present, is it wise for the left to say, no, we should be doing this other stuff instead? Or rather, should the left be saying yes to court packing? And what we also need are these checks on judicial supremacy?
3: So I, I'm kind of where um, Du Bois and, and like Norman Tom, uh, Thomas are like basically. Black radicals and socialists in the 30s were, which is um, yes plus. So like Norman Thomas who's a socialist, ultimately backed court packing in the, the context of the 1930s. But what he said uh, in a letter, which I, you know, I thought was you know, really well stated, is that he was just surprised by the labor leadership support for court packing because he's like, how much better is it to be ruled by 15 judges than nine? Like that doesn't actually solve the underlying problem. And so that's essentially my my view, which is I'm glad that we're having the conversation about court packing, but I think basically we should think of... There are two ways you can think of court packing, as I'mna highlighted. One way is it's a kind of partisan fix that gets us back to some prior moment of legitimacy. And frankly, that's a lot of how FDR thought about the purpose of court packing in the 1930s. He was deeply wary of much more radical and eruptive changes to the constitutional system. It's one of the reasons he didn't actually want const- a constitutional amendment conversation because he was worried that that like he'd lose control over what happened in the streets. So there's a way in which you can have a court packing story that's about return to normalcy. It's why Pete Buttigieg was the person that backed court reform during the Democratic primary. But you could also have a story where it's like, it's the first step In terms of thinking of a fundamental transformation in the court system, really basically like abolishing the courts, the the Supreme Court and the federal court structure as we know it. And so that would mean like the things I would support, the US's Supreme Court is notorious, and that's I think the right word, for combining lifetime tenure with no retirement, with an incredibly small number of justices, and no meaningful amendment path. So it just centralizes all of the power in this institution in a way that basically the only kind of equivalent is Ayatollah Khomeini in Iran. Like, I mean, we don't really have other examples of jurists that have this kind of authority. And so, you know, I think what we should be talking about is dramatically expanding the number of justices that are on this court, imposing term limits, um, having a retirement age, tying it to systematic similar transformations that are taking place in the federal judiciary. There's no ethics requirements on the Supreme Court and the only ethics requirements for the federal judiciary in, in general are internal requirements. All of that has to be transformed. We should have. We should get rid of judicial review, in my view, as we know it. So have some kind of dialogic function where legislatures can overturn the decisions made by Supreme Court justices uh, we should tie this to simplifying the amendment process. I mean, so we can imagine a much broader range than just like adding two justices or like the truly terrible 555 plan that Judge presented, which was just a way of entrenching our own partisan divides. Marbury?
2: I guess I'm a little more, I was going to just say, I agree with kind of the premise of what you just said, is I'm a little more skeptical. And I, you know, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, who I'm a big fan of, um, often says we have to assume we will win. Um, and I think the, the idea of this kind of stepping stone of if we just add more judges now, the next fight will be this like delegitimizing fight. And my, I think what will happen is we add more judges and that's a hard fight to win and we win it. And everyone's like, Oh, look, we fixed it. And I think that that happens over and over again is that we settle for what are really reformist reforms in the name of stepping towards something transformational. And we just never get to step in. So, I mean, I think that for me, at least when I think about, what this moment has created for possibility. Part of it is desanctifying these institutions. And the reality is the court hasn't always been nine people. We all know that, that there's been a long history. And I think that just like kind of capitalism gets mystified as inherent and ahistorical, so does things like the Supreme Court in this moment. This is not a sanctified institution. Um, It's not one that has served us. And then I think what is required is not only the judicial review. And you said this earlier, of like literally we have the most difficult constitution to amend unless you are one of these nine people. People who who gets appointed who has no kind of is not in touch with the actual ramifications of your decisions, but you are anointed to actually change the constitution in kind of in in different ways about how you read it. And then I think the supermajority also makes a lot of sense So like how do we make sure that like the kind of ultimate check before you can if you can use um, judicial review that it is done um, with the supermajority. But I mean, my goal is to be transparent all around actually rethinking all these institutions fundamentally. Um, and so I think the steps to doing that aren't putting band-aids on what are bullet wounds but instead actually going for the treatment of the bullet wound which means we might lose right so I think there's also like we have to be cognizant of that but I don't think having 15 people on the same court does me as like a black woman <laughs> any good um in in 30 years necessarily right like if there isn't a, a shift in the ways in which power is operated by that court um and I think that it will allow some liberals and even some like leftists to, to think that there was a victory when there isn't one. And so I think of like Cabral of claim no easy victories that doesn't feel like a win. And I think sometimes we think we're on a road to more transformational reform, but in fact, we're giving um, excuses for folks to stop walking with us. So that was my concern.
3: I I totally agree. Like, I I think maybe the the thing that I would say is what counts as court packing is really like open right now, you know, so that I, I think one of the spaces to contest it is basically to say, Like the argument we make is not, you know, the goal is to add just a couple more justices or this, the the 555 plan that I I mentioned earlier. But, you know, within the, the debate about court reform to actually make the argument for this like broader transformation, because that's that is court reform. So it's rather than taking maybe this is to say. We shouldn't take the terms as given that are presented to us about like what counts as a, quote unquote, like court packing agenda or a court reform agenda that like the left or we or, you know, one needs to actually have an articulated plan that fills that space and then contest test the policy on those terms.
0: Amna?
1: I want to yeah, kind of... I think I'm somewhere kind of in the middle, or we're in a little bit of a triangle around this. Um, I love this
0: triangle. It's very interesting.
1: So right. I've been thinking a lot about non-reformist reforms recently, and Marbury and I have been writing an article, which hopefully will come out at some point, about um, abolitionists and how they think about, or how we think about non-reformist reforms. And so one of the things that, when, you, if you go back to Andre Gors' book, Strategy, for labor. um, So in the socialist context, and then in Marbury and I's article, we talk about this too, the line between reformist and non-reformist reforms is not always that sharp, right? And so I think Whether court packing is a reformist or non reformist reform is probably debatable. And so I think the thing that it has going for it is that it shows the contingency of our political arrangements and our judicial institutions. And it shows, depending, I actually, I'm not sure about this. Aziz, if they, I mean, I'm assuming you know, like, what is the mechanism for assigning, for creating more seats? Would it have to go through Congress or can the president do it or? how does it happen
3: yeah so there's a there's a constitutional amendment process but that's of course kind of foreclosed right. and so there's a legislative process and the legislative process is that so the congress has authority over sort of establishing inferior courts and in a sense like creating a legislative scheme for appointments so you could imagine a legislative package that would provide like new federal judges and then those federal judges would be able to circle on and off of the Supreme Court. So in keeping with the language of Article 3, you would still have lifetime appointment to the federal courts, but the service of time that you spend on the Supreme Court could actually be limited. So you could serve on the Supreme Court for a shorter period of time and then you can dramatically expand, for example, the number of justices, the number of judges that go from the from a lower federal court onto the Supreme Court, you could create a panel system where let's say you have, you know, India has 34 Supreme Court judges, Germany has 16. Like, so it's a certain number of judges that are now on the Supreme Court that circle onto it would then sit for particular cases. So it wouldn't be as highly polarized. And you can do all of that by legislation. Of course, there's a big problem, which is all of this would then end up getting litigated in the courts in this particular court. So you know, they would end up making assessments about the constitutionality of of these kinds of legislative fixes.
0: A judicial snake eating its own (laughs) anti-democratic tail.
1: Yeah, so I think, right. So it would require, you know, it would require political action through Congress at the outset, it seems. And so in that sense, it would require a form of mass politics and mass engagement um, in order to push the Democrats to even kind of go this far. And so in that sense, you know, I think it like I think about kind of what Aziz was saying, but like in a slightly different guise, which is you know, just like reformists can push defund the police and what they really mean is like, let's cut the budget by five, maybe even fifteen percent and then call it a day and abolitionists can push defund as a radical strategy to question the very premises of policing and to work towards abolition. Um, So, I mean, I'm not as excited about court packing as I am about defund, but I think court packing, you know, like the stories we tell, the movements that we build around these demands, the people we organize, I think all of those things really matter. Um, And I'm totally with Marbury that this is not the reform that I'm I'm not super excited about court packing nor is it the reform I would push out of the ones that are being debated right now. But I also agree with Aziz that if this is the one on the table and the one with momentum, I think there's a way to support it in a larger kind of context of denaturalizing the court, raising some fundamental questions about what role it plays in society um, and reminding uh, the public in a way that I think movements are doing an extraordinary job of these days, that our political environment, our yeah, our, our politics and our political institutions are contingent creatures that we have, we ultimately lend legitimacy, and we have the opportunity to reshape them, to withdraw legitimacy, withdraw legitimacy and consent, and to build new things.
0: Uh, Marbury, what what do you think about connecting defund to the court project in terms of? Do you see a possibility of, of, of linking court politics to emancipatory left and black political projects that include both both economic justice and ending the carceral state? Because because like I said earlier, I, I find it so bizarre and revealing that we're having these mass movements around criminal justice that are totally separate and not involved in this, these huge debates and discussions around the high court.
2: Yeah, I think it's a good question. I mean, I was, I've been thinking about this a lot. A, a bunch of kind of organizers, um, have been posting about this question of like, is there a Supreme Court in my abolitionist future? And I think it's a really good question. And the answer is clearly not this <laughs> Supreme Court, right? There's, this is not the version of a Supreme Court that, um, is in any of our abolitionist futures. But I think there's a question that stands about like, what is, what is the role of state of the state um, in injustice, when the state has been so long affiliated with with violence against black and brown and poor people, um, and still is in every way. And so, I mean, when I think about, I mean, one of the reasons why I think that I'm in some ways opposed to the idea of court packing without transformation reform is because I think that the courts, as long as they're seen as legitimate actors, that there's violence that's going to be done um, to people, right? And so I think whether that is, um, quite frankly, the calling of prosecution for folks um, who kill or injure, um, whether it's, you know, black and brown folks or anybody, that the idea that, that we want to use the courts as the like the kind of um, the decision makers or legitimate actors in making sure that justice is done, I think is really problematic. And so I think that's true both on the Supreme Court level, but also on the county court level um, and across the board. And so I don't know that there's a relationship, quite frankly, between the court system as it operates now and abolition. What we've seen, I think, whether it's in the last few months, or that's because of the COVID-19 crisis and now because of some of uprisings, is like the a massive expansion of mutual aid outside of the state and outside of courts, right? The people are finding ways to ensure justice, to ensure healing, to deal with harm that have nothing to do with the court system, because for so long, the court system has actually never been about arbitrating justice for Black folks or brown folks in this country. Like, that's never been its objective. It's never been its outcomes. And so I think that there was, there was a kind of a long, long history of organizing around abolition that's happened outside the courts for very good reason. And it's hard for me to imagine inside of this country, current configuration that the courts become an arbitrator um, of fairness or justice in the abolitionist future. And I think that one of the dangers of this moment, and uh, and I think, I don't remember, it might have been an article, um, it was either Ruth Wilson Gilmore or it might have been younger Taylor, but writing about kind of the reality that so many of our institutions are really up for grabs, that this, the COVID crisis, now um the uprisings, now the Supreme Court have all kind of laid bail how these failures are multiplying and that these systems aren't actually, um they will not created to solve us, they're not broken, they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. And I think the court system is kind of the best example of that, that really it's doing exactly what it's supposed to be doing um, and has been doing that. And so I don't know the relationship, to be honest, and it's one that I'm thinking deeply about between kind of abolition and defund and the courts. Um, But I do think that the possibility for co-option inside the courts is is dangerous and alive.
3: I think this is a really important point, which is like if if after the end of the conversation that we have about the reorganization of the court system, we have a constitutional order writ large in which the courts continue to have this kind of power. And what we think of the constitution is basically determined by the cases that come up in the Supreme Court, that'll be a massive failure because a big part of this is like, who are the judges? Like the judges are actors within the state that are invested, even the center left judges where you build like the, this like cult of the constitution around, like, you know, Ginsburg, whoever else, that really invested in the activity of the state and the kind of violence that the state perpetrates. And a, a, a central reason why like, you know, abolitionist agenda does not appear before the court is because they get to decide which cases come before them. Then they write opinions and what gets taught in a constitutional law class at an elite school, the opinions that they write. Essentially, the public has handed over authority over the meaning of the constitution and the constitutional project To the reform objectives, the vision of a very small set of jurists who are themselves officers of the state engaged in acts of violence. And so to me, like part of this has to be figuring out ways to essentially extract the project of the Constitution and how we think of constitutional project, uh, constitutional politics from the courts themselves and to dramatically de-emphasize the centrality of the very specific like legal elite conversation that takes place on the courts as the primary way that we, we talk about things like like racial reform or economic justice.
0: I think it's sort of revealing on that count that, that it's RBG and not Sotomayor, who's the justice who's venerated, given that Sotomayor is really the only one on the court who's willing to express skepticism of the carceral state as as such.
2: And it's often alone in doing that, which is I mean, not a yeah.
0: shock. But Well, here's a related question. Should should the left believe in some form of law that is somewhat insulated from politics? Do we want to entirely toss out the liberal notion that the judiciary has a role to play in protecting individual and group rights against the tyranny of the majority? And if so, how would we square that with everything else we've been talking about?
3: So First, I, I do think this is something that um, that Umna writes and talks about. So, I do think that there's like a a defensive role that the law plays for movements in terms of just cases can be a space, litigation can be a way of just limiting some of the extreme forms of violence that exists. So that's like a defensive maneuver that's not really about you know, radical transformation. So I I think that it's important to kind of keep that in mind as something that that does occur. And then like for me, you know, I I broadly come out of like a, a critical legal tradition. And my basic view is as a as a matter of one's politics, that it's essential that that you do not keep law and politics separate, that you recognize the extent to which laws deeply infused with power relations that sustain modes of injustice and inequality. But that doesn't mean that as a matter of political practice, I think that we should just collapse law entirely into politics, either domestically or frankly at the international level, because there's this big problem, which is if you engage in that collapse, then oftentimes what happens is that just unleashes the existing forms of power. A lot of the the folks that are making arguments about how you know th- this is an arena where law doesn't apply are individuals, you know, you can think about Trump in the context of like kidnapping children or the violation of basic like international human rights abroad that are essentially defending their own impunity. And it's the right for a long time that's been making arguments both at home and abroad again. That what really should dominate is just like pure politics or that like, actually, this isn't a national security arena might be an arena where where law is irrelevant. So I kind of agree with, in a way, what's thought of as like a critical, a, 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 you know, like a CRT. So the critical race theory position that says that there should be a defense of rights and there should be a way of thinking about law as a tool to hold to account those that claim absolute impunity, at the least to be able to say that it's a way of holding those in power to the very rules that they themselves have established as just like a bare minimum. But I don't think that that's necessarily, that law is the emancipatory or the transformative tool. And I also don't necessarily think that a rights language has to be litigation driven rather than through legislative or popular means, which historically have been the best way that rights have actually been entrenched.
0: I'm sorry, Aziz, but uh, President Trump has canceled critical race theory. <laughs>
3: I regret to inform you. Um, Amna?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, it's really hard for me to crunch this question about the role of law in a ideal kind of idealized left utopia of some sort, because we're so, so, so <laughs> far from that, that I just I really, you know, it's it's hard to know, because on the one hand, Uh, you know, and in thinking and writing and talking to faculty about abolition for the last few years, I mean, one thing that has become clear to me is that for liberals and elites, and maybe even for a lot of the public, you know, the carceral state has such a deep and broad um, footprint that many of us have a really hard time imagining what the law is without the massive carceral apparatus that is present in the state. So what is the law without mass incarceration and mass policing? Of course, you know, we are unusual in the number of, I mean, we're singular in the number of people that we incarcerate in the scale of our police and modes of criminalization. And on the other hand, it's so saturated uh, into our particular notions and experiences of what law and the state are about um, that it's hard to kind of, it's hard to, um, kind of separate from that. And on the other hand, uh, you know, of course, corporate power, the workplace, uh, you know, there you have very little kind of regulation of employers. And um, and so, you know, you kind of have what I heard Ruth Wilson Gilmore recently call organized abandonment. Right. Um, and so those kind of pulls together make it very hard to or to kind of imagine something different. But I will say this at this juncture, I think it's essential for the left to embrace law as a form, tool, and terrain of politics. And I think movements are doing that in a way that's really powerful. One of the things that's so important, compelling, um, striking about today's movement politics is whether or not it's explicitly articulated Today's movement politics are deeply expressing an intuition about the anti, the kind of anti-populist, anti-majoritarian nature of the courts, because it's not focused on courts. It's focused on largely on local and city politics and on budgets, right? So questions of the purse. And so um, in that sense, questions of distribution and redistribution, which fundamentally kind of dislodge the centrality of, for example, the rights debates as the central debate for liberals or the left in terms of how to engage with law, are really kind of transforming even what we think of in terms of law reform or reform um, agendas. So for now, I think that that's
2: kind of where I'm at. Barbara? Yeah, I would agree with that. It's hard to to get into like a left utopian state of mind (laughs) at the moment. Um, But I will say that I just don't know of any time when the law hasn't been political. And so whether it is like um, slavery or apartheid or colonialism or kind of genocidal anti-Semitism, like all of these were legal (laughs) regimes that were organized with laws. Um, And so I just, I mean, human rights is also a politic, right? And so I don't know, of a kind of an existence of law outside the will of people who are political beings um, and society, which is a political, um, and devil and so I just i don't know how to distinguish them but what I do know and i think it's important is Omnis said is that um we a as a liberal and a left project understand that the law is deeply deeply political in the in the world we live in right now um and that it's it's not a historical that it it, it is and it's not sanctified <laughs> that it is both political and therefore must be changed and must must be devolved in some basic way and so I you know, I, I think that this idea of mitigating harms with the law is important, but also recognizing that, you know, we can't use the master's tools um, and so that the law cannot be the only way, the only kind of, the only place that we fight, the only terrain on which we wage battle cannot be a legal terrain. And that I think is all important in naming the law as a political entity, because otherwise I think people get caught up and give too much energy and time into trying to fight it um, inside of courtrooms, when in fact, the winning of this battle won't happen in a courtroom, right? The revolution would not happen <laughs> in a courtroom. And so I think it's important that we just we recognize that. And I don't like the kind of utopian question. I don't have an answer to, but I I do think that it's a necessity that we just know in my in my knowledge of history, it's never not been deeply political.
1: I mean, not to mention, right. I mean, we've been talking for the last two hours about the Supreme Court, but the way that most people experience the courts is through their local courthouses that are evicting them from their homes or prosecuting them for crimes um, or charging them for some ticket um, or something like that. Right. And so this is another reason why I think the left project is a project in solidarity with working class people by and for working class people. And because legal process is central to effectuating all for all of the for, major well many of the major forms of exploitation and violence of our times, whether it's eviction, deportation, incarceration, the courts as a site of battle as a site of kind of creating you know um, you know be, we can't we can't disavow that because, it is a their fundamental sites of violence, inequality, exploitation, extraction, and legitimation of that as you know pres- as having proper process and therefore legitimate. Um, and so you know the defensive piece. Uh, just to be clear, like that's kind of I, I don't know is exactly what you were thinking of, but that's what you know that's what it kind of brought up for me um, is that aspect of the courts, which when you focus on the Supreme Court. You don't think about, um, but is really the real and more kind of practical way that the law shows up in people's lives every day. It just
3: just as like a like a little uh, additional thought that that spurred, which is this is another thing that's like r- really destructive about the the cult of the Supreme Court justice and of the Supreme Court in particular, because in a way, you know, the focus on the idea that the decisions that get made at the Supreme Court are the product of like this, you know, elaborate reasoning that's grounded in liberal jurisprudence, and it's the height of wisdom, you know, what is the actual practical effect for most people? What it does is it legitimates the entirety of the court system. And what does the entirety of the court system do, as Amna said, like, it imposes daily violence on people. Now, for me, like, like a version of why this is tough is like, I'm a statist, so my politics is a socialist politics, and I actually think that we need a state to be able to implement transformative change. But at the same time, there's no doubt that like the primary way that people end up interacting with the state is in modes that are deeply oppressive. That's like a, it's another parallel version of the same question about law, which is law is embedded in relations of power that are deeply oppressive. Yet at the same time, like there there probably needs to be some arena of law so that folks can be able to you know, act free of like the impunity of those that have power.
2: I was just, that just brings up a quick thought for me too of I think that all of these courts, whether it's like, you know, the court that is literally stealing money out of your pocket for fees and fines or the court that puts you in a cage or the court that all of them um, limit and vet who can act inside of them in a way that I think is really, really limiting of mass movement. And so you have to have a law degree. You have to like there's all these levels of and you have to reach to actually be a speaker inside of these systems, which I think is just a recreation of kind of the ways in which. All of these systems are trying to limit popular um, democracy and kind of popular engagement in different ways. And there are some amazing projects, the Participatory Defense Project, which is like trying to open up these spaces to be more democratic than they currently are. But I think that that this elitism reproduces itself from the Supreme Court, that like you know it's just nine people, all the way down to you know the fact that you have to have a loyal. Um, in criminal court, and that you, you know, like that there's no way to operate without a law degree effectively for your own um, for your own benefit. So I think that there's a reproduction of elitism that's dangerous,
0: and that's being carried to an even more extreme conclusion by the conservative legal project of restricting further and further and further who has standing in any given case. Absolutely, to an extent yeah, where absolutely. with this uh, emoluments case, are you know arguments being made essentially that no one has standing. <laughs> which is uh, yeah.
2: which, which is wild <laughs> i mean i I think I said I said this before, but I'll just say as my final, my closing argument that you know the Supreme Court has never protected us and won't ever in this form. And even if we pack the court, we make the court. The reality is that we are the ones who protect ourselves. That it is mass movement, it is organizing, it is folks who don't have law degrees very often or not legal experts who actually enact change. And so I just like I think naming that that, that um, these are really relevant fights, but actually the fight that's happening in the streets that's been happening all summer, all decade. Um, our century is the fight that I think it's worth paying attention to and feeding, um, and that that is the fight that actually dictates these other decisions.
3: Yes. So, like, as a j- just like kind of connected to that, I mean, I the thing that's really key for me is that the U.S. is not now and has never been democratic, and the legitimacy of the Supreme Court rests on the idea that there's some set of like ideal economic and political legal arrangements that just basically need effectively to be preserved by an insulated body. And all of that is a deeply destructive fiction. And so it means that if the country is not now and has never been democratic, then the project of the moment is to truly transform the society in keeping with genuinely emancipatory ends. And that means taking the constitution effectively away from the courts, having straight, like real discussions about what a transformation in the constitutional system as a whole would, would mean, and like focusing on the kind of mass mobilization and insurgent democratic politics that would be necessary to get us there.
1: Perhaps on a more pessimistic note, this is the thought that I'm left with after thinking about all of this, is that, of course, one of the things about neoliberalism is that it's intimately tied with, or an aspect of it, is the rise of the carceral state. And so because of that, the main way that the state shows up in people's lives is through prisons and police. And so one of the things I'm left with in thinking about how evictions, deportations, traffic court, criminal courts, prosecution and policing are the main way that the legal system is in people's lives is precisely that the courts are deep, the you know kind of the daily infrastructure and footprint of the courts is deeply intertwined with the shape of the state in people's lives. It's not just about policing in prisons. It's also about having to go to court. And so that just kind of underlines the point, point that Marbury was making about being very careful in how we engage with the Supreme Court to make sure that our project is never to legitimate that institution because it always re-legitimates the kind of um, the the footprint of the court system across the country in the way that Aziz was describing. And so when we think about what kind of like arguments or reforms, uh, the the line between a reformist and non-reformist reform, holding in mind the actual presence of the judicial system and what it looks like, and the relationship between that and the Supreme Court seems very central.
0: Well, Aziz Rana, Amna Akbar, and Marbre Staley Butts, thank you very much.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: That's great. Thank you. Aziz Rana is a law professor at Cornell, the author of the book The Two Faces of American Freedom and a frequent presence here on The Dig. Amna Akbar is a law professor at The Ohio State University who writes about today's left social movements, their experiments and demands. Marbury Staley butts is a movement lawyer and executive director of Law for Black Lives. She's a member of the Movement for Black Lives and one of the architects behind the Vision for Black Lives policy platform and Black Mamas Bailouts. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that, "...the police, the judiciary, and the administration are not the representatives of a civil society which administers its own universal interests in them and through them." They are the representatives of the state, and their task is to administer the state against civil society. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis and recorded at WBRU in Providence. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Tomus Frankel and Muriel Solomon. Our senior advisor is Thea Rio Francos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio and find us wherever you get podcasts and please then subscribe. If it is on iTunes, please leave us a nice review, a review and a rating. Those help introduce us to new listeners, but what really and truly does that is you telling other people that you know in real life or through the internet or wherever to listen to the show. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep the show up and running strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge.